The reading for our sermon today is from 2 Kings, um, chapter 13, verse 10 to 25. It should be on page 182 in the Bibles, Blue Bibles. I'll give you a minute to turn there. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, began to reign over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 16 years. He also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, but he walked in them. Now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did, and the might with which he fought against Amaziah, the king of Judah, they were not written in the book of Chronicles, of the king of Israel. So Joash slept with his fathers and Jeroboam sat on the throne and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash king of Israel went down to him and wept before him crying, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elisha said to him, take a bow and arrows. And he took a bow and arrows. And then he said to the king of Israel, draw the bow and he drew it and Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands and he said open the window eastward and he opened it and then Elisha said shoot and he shot and he said the Lord's arrow of victory the arrow of victory over Syria for you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them and he said take the arrows and he took them and he said to the king of Israel strike the ground with them and he struck three times and stopped Then the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six times, then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. So Elisha died and they buried him. Now bands of the Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Now Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz, and the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them, and he turned towards them, because his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. When Hazael, the king of Syria, died, Ben-Hadad and his son became king in his place. Then Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, took again from Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazel, and cities that he had taken from Jehoahaz, his father, in the war. Three times Joash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before your word now, Lord, I just pray that you would um, open our hearts to hear the truth of your word, Lord. Um, I also just pray for JR, Lord. I pray that you would um, keep his lips from error, Lord, and that through your spirit you would speak to us this morning. In your name, amen. Thank you, Danny. Great job with the J names, of which there are many. Well, uh, long before it became a meme, uh, and even that was a while ago now, uh, some of you may not even know what I'm talking about as I'm about to say this. Uh, a guy I used to work with would often say to people in the hallway as he walked past them, are you winning? And he'd, he'd kind of say it with a bit of a, you know, this cheeky smile on his face and a bit of a fist bump, just a minor one. Are you winning? And what he meant by that 
as perhaps you might imagine, was, uh, is your day going well? Are you achieving the things that you are setting out to achieve today? Are you doing the things that you want to do? It's a sentiment that, uh, you know, more often than not, is present in our everyday thinking, right? It makes sense. Who doesn't want to win? I mean, I, I, you don't mean too many people who, think, who say, yeah, I, I, I just want to be a loser. That's just my life goal. I just want to lose at everything, you know. Who doesn't want to achieve and do the things that they set out to do? Who doesn't want to accomplish the things that they set out to accomplish? And we even call them wins. You know, when we achieve something, when it's not like technically a win of a, of a competition or something, you know, when you, when you do something great, you know, uh, especially with our kids, for example, you know, they, uh, they, they pee on the potty for the first time, and that's a great win. We call it a win. We want, we want our kids to have these wins so that they can build confidence and build competence in the things that they do. And so, are you winning? Are you winning? Kids, do you like to win? Especially when it means, like, you can successfully go to the toilet. <laughs> I know your parents like it when you win at that. That's for sure. What kind of things do you like to win at? Anyone? Playing games. Playing games. Hey, what kind of games, Connor? Checkers. Oh, hey, come on. You are, you are going places, my boy. <laughs> we all like to win. Oh, wait, one more. Galaji. Other sports. Excellent, excellent. Uh, yeah, that's good. Well, this morning's passage, everybody, is all about winning. And it's all about how God wins. It's all about how God wins. It is all about how those who are in Him, who are in God, win also. And so let's dive into our passage with heads and hearts open, ready to discover how we can win. Now, just so you know, uh, Danny read out verses 10 to 25, but I am only going to focus on verses 14 to 21. But 10 to 25 gives us a bit more context. All right, so I have two straightforward points for you this morning, and let's begin with the bigger of the two. Point one, God wins. God wins. So here we are at the end of Elisha's life. If you've only just joined us this morning, we've been doing a series in, Elijah, in, in 1 and 2 Kings focusing on Elijah and Elisha, and this is the last episode of Elisha's life recorded in the Bible. After decades of ministry, many supernatural signs and prophetic words that were spoken through him, we now reach the final chapter of Elisha's life. Depending on how you count, the Bible has told us uh, of upwards of 20 different prophetic words that he has spoken, as well as uh, miracles that he has performed uh, all throughout Israel and, and in surrounding nations. And in this final passage that we are looking at, we see two more, two final uh, miracles and words that are performed in Elisha's life. One while he is sick and he is knocking on death's door, and one which actually happens long after he is dead. And so to give you a little bit of context, the Joash context, the Joash mentioned in our passage is the same Joash of verse 10. However, uh, that can be a little bit confusing because 
Uh, the Joash of verse 10 that is mentioned, who is the king of Judah, that's not the Joash I'm referring to. So that is not the Joash that we see in our passage. The Joash that we see in our passage is Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz. Just to be really clear. Right? The, the reason we know that is because Jehoash is the king of Israel and Joash is a shortened version of Jehoash. And Joash, the king of Judah, is not the king that we're talking about in our passage this morning. And so this Jehoash, the Joash of our passage, is the grandson of Jehu, whom we saw a couple of weeks ago. And in the time that has passed since Jehu came to the throne, you might remember Elisha came and anointed him and he was amongst the commanders. Uh, and, and after Elisha anointed him to be the next king, Jehu carried out the judgment on Ahab's household, which Elisha said he was going to do. And Hazael, who was a couple of weeks ago, again, uh, he's the king of Syria. He has also made things really difficult for Israel and he's continually beaten them in battle. And meanwhile, while all of this is going on in Israel, in Judah, the queen mother took the throne when her son died and then she was deposed by her hidden grandson six years later. It's, it, if, you know, if you haven't read it, go and read it. It's great. The intervening chapters between our last sermon and today's. Uh, there's it's all sorts of uh, royal intrigue. And if that to you sounds like every other storyline to do with kings and queens, whether it's fictional or true, you are correct. That is because uh, almost, it, you just can't escape it. When it involves the royals, there is always someone trying to take the throne. Power often amplifies our inherent sinfulness like few other things. And these kinds of power grabs, they are common features of kingdoms right throughout history. And so now, here we are in our passage this morning with a king of Israel who has got a whittled down army. He's, he's, he's been battered and bruised by Hazael, as I mentioned before, and his army is now down to 450 horsemen and 10 chariots, as verse 7 tells us. And not only that, but his nation's premier prophet, Elisha, the one who has kept the whole nation from being destroyed several times, as we've seen in our series a few times, just over and over again, Elisha has been the difference between Israel being saved and Israel being decimated and destroyed by other nations. And now here he is, lying on his deathbed, knocking on death's door, his, Israel's only real hope. Let's read the first verse of our passage in verse 14. Now, when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. The chariots of Israel and its horsemen. You might remember this phrase from uh, one of our first sermons in this series. This is exactly what Elisha says to Elijah on the day uh, and in the moment when Elijah is taken up to heaven by a whirlwind. And he's accompanied by God's flaming chariots and horses. Now, I'm sure the, the actual chariots and horsemen of Israel and the depletion of them, as we just saw in verse 7, was on Joash's mind. But perhaps as we read this, we think to ourselves, maybe there is a glimmer of faith here. 
It could very well be that these words that Elisha spoke when Elijah was taken up became well known and it became the phrase that was to be used. And Joash here is realizing that the man of God that God has given him who has consistently helped the nation because he speaks on behalf of the Lord, because he sees things before they happen and he's able to warn Israel against them, he's about to be taken from him. Perhaps, just perhaps, Joash here cries out this phrase, recognizing what he is about to lose in this moment. Elisha proceeds to give him a series of instructions, which he readily and quickly obeys each time. In verses 15 and 16, the narrative is is short and sharp. Take the bow and arrow, draw the bow, open the window, shoot the arrow. And Joash obeys every time at every point. And in the middle of this set of instructions, in verse 16, Elisha lays his hands on the king's hands. In the Old Testament, the laying on of hands, especially by a prophet, was often symbolic and significant. We see an example of this in Numbers chapter 27, verses 18 and 20, when Moses lays his hands on Joshua and invests in him the authority to lead Israel after him. What exactly is going on here in our passage with, uh, with Elisha and Joash is not 100% clear because uh, the Bible doesn't give us a full explanation, but I'd say it's likely that Elisha is symbolizing the importance, once again, of the king being guided by the Lord. The importance of him needing to place his trust in God. And certainly the action is is one that most of us can probably relate to, right? If you've ever tried to learn uh, something that involves your hands, some kind of skill like like shooting a bow uh, or perhaps playing golf or, or learning the violin as some of our kids are at the moment and you find that place, if somebody comes and places your hands Uh, their hands on yours and and puts them in the right position to make sure that you've got them in the right spot, then that becomes of enormous help as you are learning what it is that you are learning to ensure that you do the right thing. In that sense, Elisha's hands here represent God's hands on the king's. God is guiding him in this action and what he is about to prophesy for him. And so he instructs him next, open the window eastward. And the reason he gives him that instruction is because in verse, uh, sorry, in verse 17, is because the land of Syria actually lies to the east of Israel. More specifically, the city of Aphek, mentioned there, is probably on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. We we don't know that for sure, but it, it is a city that has come up before in 1 Kings 20, verse 26 where it was the site of a battle between the then kings of Israel, Ben-Hadad and Ahab. And in that battle, many years before this moment, the Lord actually gave victory to Ahab. It's a site of victory for the Israelites. And so it's pretty likely that this is actually a current battleground between the two nations. And that's why Elisha singles it out. And so with this prophecy... Oh, sorry, with this action comes a prophecy in the second half of verse 17. Let's have a look there. And he said, that is Elisha, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria. For you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek, 
until you have made an end of them. Until you have made an end of them. The arrow of winning. God is promising victory to the king. This arrow that he has just shot out the window is is a prophetic arrow that represents the fact that God will give him total victory. You notice that wording? Until you have made an end of them. Or at least that's what would have happened. Let's read from verse 18. And he said, Take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. And so ends the story of Elisha and Joash. With a few details given in the Bible, it can be a little bit confusing to understand what just happened here. Obviously, Elisha was continuing his instructions to Joash. Joash fired the arrow. He gave that prophecy about victory over Syria, but he kept giving him more instructions. Elisha wasn't finished. The proclamation of the end of Syria was not the end of what Elisha was telling him. There was more that Joash needed to hear of the Lord's word and respond to. And so this next action of striking the ground with the arrows was meant to confirm the full extent of that victory. And because Joash only went so far as three times, the extent of that victory would now only be limited. It would not be a complete victory. Now, in these times, a quiver could uh, hold up to 30 arrows. Uh, but given, that Elisha's, given Elisha's reaction, this one probably had less, maybe six or so. And this would make sense, because if the point was to follow through on Elisha's actions and to follow through and symbolize the fullness and the completeness of the Lord's victory, notice the same language, to, to make an end of it. If that's what this was meant to be symbolizing, then you can see why Elisha would be angry about it. The point of the exercise was for Joash to follow through with most, if not all, of the arrows that he just handed to him. But Joash stopped instead before he was supposed to. The illusion of the text is that for some reason, perhaps because Joash thought the instructions were just, this, this is starting to get a bit ridiculous, like this is kind of dumb, like why... What am I even doing here? He stopped at three and decided not to follow through on the rest of the arrows. The earlier glimmer of hope that showed Joash's faith that perhaps he truly trusted the Lord and the fact that Elisha was about to to pass on and be gone has revealed itself to be nothing more than just a pale reflection of true light. There is no true spark of faith 
in Joash. There is no true flame. Even this small, simple task given by the prophet exposes how much faith the king really has, which is to say he has none. And Elisha is obviously frustrated at this. He calls out Joash's lack of faith for what it is and pronounces God's judgment on him. You will only win three times. And this does actually happen, as we heard earlier in verse 25. The three victories are specifically recorded. He does not make an end of Syria completely. It's amazing, isn't it, how time and time again, even as we've seen in this series, God's people forget Him and fail to act in faith. No matter how many times they see Him work, no matter how many times they see His Word fulfilled in their lives and in the, in the lives of those around them and in their nation, they fail to have faith in Him. Even the original man of God, Moses, in frustration, struck the rock instead of speaking to it as God told him to in front of the Israelites and God judged him for his lack of faith. The Lord tells him in Numbers 20, verse 12, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Do you notice the charge? It's not because you did the wrong thing because you didn't obey my instructions, even though that is true. Even though God still followed through when Moses struck it, even though uh, water still flowed from the rock, he called out Moses' lack of faith. Because you did not believe in me. Fast forward to Jesus' apostle Thomas. He also lacks faith in the news of Jesus' resurrection. He says, unless I can put my fingers in his hands and my hand in his side, I will never believe. And Jesus graciously rebukes him when he appears in John 20, verse 27, by saying, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. You see, it's not just unbelievers who find it difficult to have faith in God, who sometimes lack faith in His Word, even after all that God has done for them, even after all that He continues to do for them, believers, even great men and women of faith throughout history have struggled to maintain it. What causes your faith to waver. When do you find yourself doubting God's word? Maybe even thinking that it's a bit silly. It's a bit ridiculous. Let me give you an example of what this uh, Joash like, oh, this is dumb lack of faith looks like in my life. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, God's sovereignty, the Bible teaches, is not incompatible with His instruction for us to pray. And that can make it difficult for us to get motivated to pray. I find myself so easily falling into the thinking, you know, if God's going to do it, it's not like I can change the outcome, right? He's sovereign. 
So what's the point of prayer? That's just dumb. Why should I keep going? Why should I keep praying if God's just going to do it anyway? I can just lean on His grace and say, well, thanks God, even though I didn't pray. And I remember having this very conversation with a teen who ended up walking away from his faith. He was kind of just like, like, what's the point of that? And I understood where he was coming from. And at the time, sadly, I had no good answers. And yet, the Bible makes so very clear, as we see in this passage, the king's response, whether it was in faith or not, had an impact on the outcome. His lack of faith impacted the outcome. And as we read in James 4.2, you do not have because you do not ask. There is a direct correlation between our prayers and how God acts. And it's only as I keep reminding myself that God's Word teaches us that He works through our prayers. And as I keep submitting my own head and heart to Him through His Word, that I have any hope of fighting off unbelief. When I align my head and my heart with God's instruction and His truth in His Word, and when He puts His hands on mine, so to speak, in guiding me in all truth through His Word, it is then that I begin to realize that prayer is not a dumb waste of time, but something that is worth giving my life to. And so I ask God to help me, to make me, to enable me to pray unceasingly and to pray with great faith in Him. What part of God's Word do you find silly? What things are you ready to just give up on? Kids, are there things in the Bible that you find difficult to believe? Do you have your own questions about what it means, about what it teaches, about how much sense it makes? Let me encourage you to talk to your parents and to other adults in our church about these things. Because God has proven time and time again that He never speaks and has never spoken a pointless, dumb word. You can keep going now. Brothers and sisters, I know the difficulty of maintaining unbroken faith. Even as ones who love God, who believe in Him, we fail to understand His Word. We fail to believe His Word. We fail to trust that it is right, that it is good, that it makes sense. We fail to obey it faithfully and fail to persist in all of those things. And what hope do we have, right? Here's me, the one who struggles to believe that God is big enough to take on even just my little needs, my little petitions. If Moses, such a great man of God, at the end of a lifetime of seeing God's faithfulness, a lifetime of seeing incredible miracles, can still make such a significant mistake of disbelief, what hope do I have? What hope do we have? It's a good question. 
And it takes us to the rest of our passage. Let's read from verse 20. So Elisha died, and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Just brief side note, don't you just love how matter-of-fact this is? So his predecessor, Elijah, the one through whom he received a double portion of the Lord's Spirit, had a far more dramatic exit with his whirlwind and his flaming chariots of horses. Elisha, on the other hand, one sentence that is seven words long in English. So he died and he was buried. Well, they buried him. And then followed immediately by a sentence that is not even really related to it. It's giving you detail for what he's about to say next. Brothers and sisters, you will live and you will die. Whether you receive great fanfare at your death, like the president coming to your funeral as Billy Graham had, or whether you depart this world with a few kind words from a friend. What matters most is whether your name is written in God's book, in his book of life. Would you rather have your name written in the history books or in God's book? Well, one time when the Moabites were invading, some gravediggers had to quickly rush because they were about to be attacked. You can imagine that if you see a marauding party on the horizon and they're coming, you're just going to dispose of that body pretty quickly and get out of there. Now, graves in those days were usually in caves or dug into soft rock, and so Elisha's body would have been more accessible than uh, our our bodies today. Obviously, you're six feet under in a coffin. It's not that easy to just get to a body. But in in those days, far more accessible. And, And I give you that important detail because, as the Bible says, all that was left of Elisha were his bones, in that time and in that place, with the kind of burial techniques that they used, that would mean that this event had to have happened at least a couple of years after Elisha died. And so between the first story and this one, between verses 19 and 20, Israel had already lived a couple of years without its premier prophet. It makes you wonder what the mood must have been like Had one of the sons of prophets, the many disciples that Elisha had, taken leadership over the group? Were there there still the same level of incredible miracles and prophetic words being performed? Maybe, perhaps, there was a sense that God's glory had passed. That he'd left his people. And yet, incredibly, this man who was dead is thrown into Elisha's grave and he's brought back to life the moment he touches Elisha's bones. 
I've mentioned before how important it is for us to remember that uh, what we're seeing here and in other places in Scripture is not an example of God infusing Elisha's bones with some kind of magical power and then, you know, what happened was everybody else started to bring their dead people and throw them on Elisha to see if they... Yeah. You might remember when Elisha actually attempted to use his staff to raise the Shunammite woman's son and that failed. Despite what else that teaches, we at least see that Objects themselves don't carry some kind of magical, mystical power that God just, you know, fuses into it and then lets it do whatever it can do. Another example of this is the woman in Mark 5 who has the chronic bleeding problem. She wasn't healed by the mere act of touching Jesus. After all, the disciples said, Lord, there's lots of people touching you. No, no, no. She was healed by Jesus through her faith. The Bible teaches that it is always God, always God who is the one who performs miracles and raises the dead to life according to His will. And that is surely, that is surely something that God didn't want the original readers of Kings or us to miss. Remember that the original readers of these texts are the Israelite exiles in Babylon and Assyria. The ones reading this were... were, a hundred and something years past this actual event. They've been defeated by those two nations and they're, they're wondering, they're reading these and wondering if God has lost, if God has left them. They're wondering if he's, if he's just, you know, all those promises he made to his people, they're not actually true. Well, these books are a historical and a theological explanation of how their nation's history ended with defeat. And it seems pretty clear that this story in verses 20 and 21 is making a rock-solid theological point, particularly in the context of right after the story of Elisha and Joash. Even, Even with kings who fail, whether there are kings that fail in military campaigns or whether that's failing in obeying the Lord or maintaining faith in Him, even when they don't defeat their enemies completely, whether that's the Syrians or the Moabites or whoever else is pressing in on their borders, even in the midst of that, God has not lost the power to win. Even when his head prophet is dead and gone and all that remains of him are his bones, the God who spoke through him, the God who performs powerful miracles through him is well and truly alive and powerful. He is so alive and powerful that he has the power over death itself to bring about life. And he can do that with a dead man. And he can do that with a dead nation. And he can do that with a dead soul. You can't help but feel like this story provides a window of hope. In spite of their king's failures, the latest example seen in Joash, nothing has defeated the Lord. His word still brings victory and life. And friends, the same is still true 
today. This provides a window of hope for us. And that brings us to our second and final point. We win in Him. In years gone by, there was a a song by an artist that I would no longer recommend called We Win. In one of his live performances of this song, he said, if you flip all the way to the back of the book, we win. The book he was referring to was the Bible, and the point of his statement was that the way the story ends for Christians is in victory. But the problem with that statement is that it's not quite true. Certainly not in the way that he meant it. And that's because if you flip all the way to the back of the book, he wins. And for all people who are in him, for all who are in Christ, by grace, through faith, they have the enormous, undeserved, incredible privilege of being part of his winning. You see, the story in the Bible is not about us achieving some great victory ourselves or thinking that we contributed to it and therefore deserve credit for the winning. That would be a little bit like a spectator sitting on their couch watching the Olympics and thinking, I deserve some credit for the women's relay swimming team winning gold in Tokyo. No, the story is about how God wins. It is about how He wins and how we get swept up and included in it because of Jesus. The passage in 2 Kings, our passage, reminds us that God doesn't just win at the geopolitical level, but He wins at life itself. He is victorious over death. As I said before, there are only three accounts of resurrection in the Old Testament. Elijah and the widow's son, Elisha and the Shunammite woman's son, and this one. These are the only three stories about resurrection that you'll find in that whole two-thirds of your Bible. All of which point to God being the one who gives life and has victory over death. And all of which look forward. Look forward to Jesus' ultimate death Sorry, victory over death on the cross. This is why Ezekiel 37 is such a relevant text and why we read it out at the start of church today. In this vision that Ezekiel has in the midst of Israel's exile, Israel's hope is dead and gone. The way they describe themselves is is as dried up bones. They are that dead that the rest of them has decayed. Their hope is that dead, that there is nothing left. But God shows Ezekiel that hope is not lost. Through the word of the Lord, dry bones receive flesh, and they have life breathed into them. And that image conveys the the metaphorical resurrection of the nation of Israel. They did return to the land of Israel, and they were, in a sense, brought back to life. But these promises that God gave to the nation of Israel through Ezekiel, while they had immediate fulfillment in that nation, they would not be the end of God's story. 
the people in the nation of Israel in their land, they would not last. They would eventually get overtaken again and they would spend centuries wondering when and how God would bring about all the things that He had promised to them. And this is where Jesus comes in. You see, for the Christian reading this passage in light of the New Testament, as a Christian looking into this and seeing how it moves forward, we can't not see the fulfillment of God's promises given here to the Israelites in Jesus and climaxing and finally being fulfilled ultimately in His second coming. How else could we say that God will raise His people from the dead? How else could we say that God will place His Spirit in them and that He would bring them into His land and do it all by the power of His Word? Without Jesus, such prophecies, such stories of people being brought back to life, they're left hanging. They're incomplete, like a high five that never meets another hand. And everyone knows how awkward and just incomplete that feels. I'm feeling it now. You see, the three people that Elijah and Elisha raised from the dead, you wouldn't, as a Christian, strictly call a resurrection. What happened to them was really more of a reanimation. They were brought back to life after being dead, only to die again. They didn't rise to eternal life. They didn't rise to an incorruptible body, but they rose to have another few years in this body and in this life. That's not so with Jesus. When Jesus rose from the dead, He didn't just walk the earth for another 40 days and then die again. No, he, he rose from the dead and then he walked and he talked with many of his disciples for another 40 days and then he ascended into heaven to the right hand of the Father and there he intercedes for his people until the day that he himself in his physical body will return. That, my friends, is true resurrection. That's the kind of resurrection that we're talking about when we talk about resurrection. And that is the resurrection that Jesus promises His people. That is the resurrection that we hope in as His people. And that is the final fulfillment of God's promises right throughout Scripture to His people. Does that stir your soul? Does that cause you to put everything else in this life into perspective? Does it help you to see that the, the 75 or so years or more or less, whatever it is that we get in this life, are dwarfed by the giant-sized life of the resurrection? Friends, this is the eternal hope of the gospel. And if you're here this morning, and if you're visiting, or you still haven't made up your mind about Jesus, let me encourage you to respond to Him today. 
The good news, also known as the gospel that we believe and talk about whenever we have the opportunity as Christians, is that Jesus has won over death. You see, death came to all men. Death came to all people in Adam through sin. But Jesus has won victory over that death, and he has done so by living a sinlessly perfect life, one that we never could live ourselves. And it ended with him dying on a cross so that anyone who hears about what he has done might turn away from their own sin and believe in him and place their trust in him and have their sins paid for by Christ on that cross to receive his salvation through faith and to know the joy of new life in him. The joy of of being filled with the, the hope and anticipation of resurrection in eternity. That is the gospel. And friends, kids, if you haven't turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus yet, do so today. Do so today. Because I would love nothing more than to be able to praise God with you in our resurrected bodies, side by side in eternity. But you know, it's not only about that. As Christians, uh, we don't just talk about resurrection and new life exclusively in terms of eternity. Just as the waters of baptism symbolize the Christian is one who has died to their sin, who dies to the life that they once lived for themselves, and they now live a resurrected new life in Christ, empowered by the Spirit. God puts His Spirit in His people. As Ezekiel 37, 14 says, And His Spirit is ever at work, growing us in faith, increasing our trust in Him and our love for Him, and growing our love for others. Brothers and sisters, if you are discouraged or you are despairing because you find yourself over and over again lacking faith as Joash did, doubting his word or thinking it's silly or giving up on what God has promised, take heart. His spirit is in you. And even in the midst of your failures, even when you wonder why God would bother with such a feeble, frail Christian like yourself, remember that He is the object of your faith, not yourself. And He has shown you this in Christ on the cross, winning a war on sin that you are otherwise destined to lose. His hands are guiding you. His spirit is breathing life in you. And he's building you up by his word. Do not lose hope. You are not dead, but alive in Christ. As God's people who are no longer a nation seeking earthly land or a people with an ethnic identity, but who are those who are united by faith in Christ and who are visibly seen in local churches all across the globe, our confidence and our hope do not rest in God who needs to, uh, do not rest in a God who needs to flex his military muscle, but in a God who has won the victory over sin and death.
He has not, and He does not, and He will not ever lose. If you flip all the way to the back of the book, you'll read this fourth last verse. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty, Come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. If you flip all the way to the back of the book, he wins. He gives life. He offers it freely without price. And we get to share in that victory by grace because of Jesus' victory on the cross. Are you winning? The arrow of victory is the Lord's. He wins and we share in that. Jesus' death and resurrection means new life for us now and a resurrection of our own in eternity by the power of His Word. Brothers and sisters, how can you grow in trusting in Jesus' victory in your life? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise and glorify you because you are the victorious one. The one whose hands guide his people. The one whose hands continue to order all of history. God, we thank you for your spirit who has breathed new life in us. And we pray, Father, that we would live our lives not as ones who are dead spiritually, dead in faith, but who put our hope and trust in our living, gracious, and victorious Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask this in His name. Amen.